enough business, let's turn to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. One of the things about having home fellowship groups is that there aren't many times when the elders and pastors can address us as a corporate body. Uh, most of that happens individually through the small groups, and so sometimes they will take time to exhort us as a full flock concerning things that the elders are leading us in. We have been in the book of Galatians for quite a while. This week, uh, I'm going to spend another week on verse 9. Next week, we'll move to verse 10. But I want you to, to read with me verses 1 to 10 of Galatians chapter 6, so we have the context for verses 9 and 10. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, I love that little <laughs> parenthetical statement. If anybody thinks he's something when he's nothing, I think probably most of us think about that, that as if it's saying, for if anyone thinks he is something during those times when he is nothing. <laughs> but that's not what it's saying. It's saying all of us are nothing. We're dust. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we have a number of commands in the book of Galatians, and we have observed through the past months that it seems uh, contrary to the message of the book of Galatians that you would have commands. Because after all, Galatians is about not living by the law, but living by grace. And so if everything is done by grace, then why would you have the law? And if you look above our text, um, you will see that um, there are a number of commands. Uh, beginning with verse uh, 13, you were called to freedom. Galatians 5.13, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then it says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you think, well, you know, why would it be saying the whole law? I thought we were done with the law. Isn't that the message of the book of Galatians? We're done with the law. Well, the truth is you're done with the law for salvation, but you've just begun with the law for sanctification. Now, I'm not saying that you're sanctified by the law, but the law is a tool. And you are saved to delighting in the Lord and therefore keeping what? Well, you're save to the keeping of the law of the Lord. 
the Lord's commandments. And it goes down and tells us to walk by the Spirit. It tells us, verse 15, not to bite and devour one another. Um, it talks about the deeds of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, real specific immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Then 22, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And then verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, if we live by the Spirit, let's also walk by the Spirit. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another. And so what you see here is there's a lot of specificity. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of concreteness. There's a lot of, um, of do's and don'ts, what uh, commentators say ethical instructions. Um, and so this is not an opposition to the message of Galatians of the freedom from the law. But it is in harmony with the message of Galatians, the freedom to the law. In other words, now you approach the law not as a sense of duty, but rather as a sense of privilege as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. You approach it knowing that he has given us the Holy Spirit to make us able to obey the law. Now, it's a dicey thing. The law easily displaces grace in our orientation to heaven. Um, and grace easily turns into license, you know, to us sinning that grace may abound. Um, I was trying to think of the, well, forget it. Um, you know, you think of being on a ridge and... Uh, you don't want to go to the left or the right. You want to maintain the ridge because there's, there's a chasm on both sides. And that's the kind of tension there is in the book of Galatians. There's a chasm on both sides, a cliff, and if a little variation in either direction and you fall into antinomianism, which is what is completely characteristic of the evangelical church today. It's, it's gaga in antinomianism. Or you fall over into uh, legalism believing that you're saved uh, by your own efforts, circumcision, whatever you do that's good. And uh, in church history, the Reformation was about that. Now, it's interesting that despite all this talk about infusion being the way that you're saved, that you've become more like Christ so that finally you're good enough to get into heaven, the Middle Ages was just filled with every kind of immorality in the church at the time. Uh, and this is one of the truths is that if you think you're saved by the law, you end up becoming worse and not better. But you also end up being very good at hiding it and being a hypocrite. And this is a lot of the conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And so as we go through Galatians, what we're seeing is first the theological doctrinal battle of freedom from the law and then returning to the law of love, the law of our Lord which is the law of doing good to each other. And so it's very easy to become discouraged in this. Now, at the beginning of chapter 6, we're given some specific things where we're to be good to each other. And one of them is, if you're caught in a trespass, any man, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one of his burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, can you call this a law? Yeah, it is the duty of those who are spiritual, according to the word of God, to go and deal with the sin of somebody who follows, to deal with it gently, to deal with it in prayer, knowing they themselves also may fall and be tempted. It is a duty. 
In other words, if churches don't do this, they are disobedient. Um, But I'll tell you, it's a nasty business. Almost nothing that we have ever been taught or led in today has taught us to submit to discipline when we fail. Uh, Almost everything we do today is is aimed at trying to turn failure into uh, simply a sort of health care crisis. You know, we speak of it clinically. Uh, Nobody's a drunkard anymore. They're an alcoholic and they need to, you know, look back into their genes or uh, maybe take a drug or, you know, not alcoholism, but you get what I'm saying. Everything today is, is being made clinical, isn't it? No moral agency on the part of anybody today. It's, it's your environment. It's systemic uh, oppression. It's, it's an absence of education. It's, you know, it's never me, is it? <laughs> and so when it comes to, in the church, dealing with somebody who's failed, and you go to somebody and say, Brother, I believe that you are a drunkard. Well, you never say that. Brother, do you have a problem with alcohol? That sounds much better. And then you go back to the elders meeting and report that they're an alcoholic. And you probably aren't sensitive to the fact that even that is a slight diminution, a slight decrease of the moral agency of the individual you're talking about. Well, we still have the good old sins like adulterer, but it depends on what is is. All right. We still have things like greed, but I mean, who has greed? Have you ever heard of anybody being disciplined because they were greedy? How would you go about proving it? (laughs) Be hard, wouldn't it? Now, smoking, that's easy. You know, they smoke. You don't smoke. Drinking, you know, that's easy. It's a little bit harder to not love alcohol, which is why the church changed it into don't drink. Because then it's clear. How about gossip? Is it gossip or is it a prayer request? Sharing. And so we go into this command, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you are a spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Now, if you're a Titus 2 woman, older women teach younger women. If you're an elder, a deacon, um, it's very discouraging to bear one another's burdens. Let's be honest. There's a reason why every church in the country has given up practicing church discipline. Okay, I take it back. If I asked you to raise your hand, if you've been in a church other than this one that's practiced discipline, most of you would put your hands up. But then I would show you that in almost every case, the only time discipline is practiced today is when the shame of not practicing it overwhelms the consequences of practicing it. In other words, when somebody has gone out and gotten married the seventh time and shows up with the seventh wife. And that's not what the Bible's talking about here. You know, if you wait to discipline your son until he punches your wife, 
I guess even a weak man at that point has to do something. Okay, so put yourself in the shoes of the leaders of churches. And it's like it says, you know, if anybody who falls into sin, those of you who are spiritual, help. You know, be gentle and and pray that you yourself don't fall. And you come across that and you go, oh, brother, this again? You know, the average church discipline case takes, what, probably somewhere between 100 and 200 hours of the elder's time. What would you say? Am I high? No, I'm not high. I may be low. You know, usually it's after years of counseling, years of private exhortations. uh, And then you have usually a year to two years of very intense work. And then you go down and you see this next statement, which it says, says, The one who's taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And again, we're dealing with a very wearying task. You know, many of us were at this church when we had a capital campaign. How many of you were here for the capital campaign? Are you weary of giving to the church? Be honest. How many of you are weary of giving to this church? Is Wayne Huck the only honest person? Wayne and David, anybody else weary? Oh, come on, be honest. Yeah, you don't have much money. That doesn't matter. It can be wearying to give money when you're a student. Very wearying. Well, I think many of us are actually very tired of giving money to this church. Um, That capital campaign was very, very difficult. Um, As a matter of fact, my giving directly correlated to my credit card debt. Almost down to the dollar. As we gave to the church, our credit card debt went up. That's real helpful, right? And so we come to discipline, we come to giving to the church, and these things are difficult. They're very, very difficult. And so what do we tend to do? Well, we tend to think that there actually is not a correlation between sowing and reaping. And so right away, it's said in verse 7, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this will also reap. And so there you're kicked into the analogy of the farm. And you think, well, yeah, that's true. You know, if you plant, you will reap. And that's generally true of the farmer, isn't it? Generally, if a farmer does plant, the farmer will reap. Now, there are things that can, that can go wrong if I can get in the ointment. For instance, you get in early in the spring and you plant, and then you have a very wet spring, you have standing water, and it wipes out a large portion of your crop. Or you have a drought, and it kills a large portion of your crop. Or if you have um, a late frost and you have an apple orchard, it can kill a lot of the blossoms. Uh, In the fall, it can be so wet that you can't get in and harvest your crop. There are things that can go wrong with the farm, but generally it's true that you will reap what you sow, right? And that's why farmers keep planting. That's why the co-op keeps extending credit to them. Um, It's generally a safe thing to say. Um, Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit 
will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so there we have the analogy of the farm applied to the church, and we are presented with the two ways, the sowing to the flesh, the sowing to the Spirit. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh destruction. You sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap from the Spirit eternal life. And then it says what? It says, do not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now here we have, again, the analogy of a farmer reaping. It does speak of those things, but notice something in this verse. Don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time. Now what is due time for doing good? We're going to reap in due time. What's due time? Well, when I get done preaching, undoubtedly one or two of you will come up to me and say, thank you, I needed that. And so there I'm reaping immediately, right? But there will be some of you that will be resenting me. And there will be some of you that all I've done this morning has been used by the Holy Spirit to plant a seed that will not germinate, let alone bear fruit, maybe for 20, 30, 40 years. And think about your own doing good. How often does it pay off right away? In fact, some of you that are here this morning are so embarrassed because you see how people have invested in you and you think, I haven't produced much fruit for their labors. Hey, it's okay. We take... Excuse me, I'm an old hippie. We take a cosmic view of these things. (laughs) You know, we know that there will be times when you'll have to put up with our failures and there will be times we'll have to put up with yours. It's okay. Church of the Good Shepherd is not a place that keeps tabs and is waiting to smack your hand. This is a place of weakness. Now, it's humbling to be a part of a place of weakness. Because then you actually take the risk and allow people to fail you. That's why so many people avoid small groups. They just assume not fail other people and not have other people fail them. It's so humbling. It's so humiliating. It's so, like, churchly. In due time. I have really benefited from the commentary of Timothy George. Um, on Galatians. And he tells, he says this on this text. He says, one of the greatest frustrations in the Christian ministry and a principal cause for weariness and well-doing is the inability to calculate the spiritual outcome of faithful labors in the work of the Lord. For this reason, we must be cautious in putting too much stock in what we often call visible results. Now, where's your brain going right now? We often put too much stock in what we call visible results. My brother worked for the investment vice president at City City Corps in New York City. He commuted from Boston. My brother was his... uh, lived in his gatehouse and took care of the property. And One day my brother was saying that we knew a man... uh, back at our church and were close friends with him and his family who had started a certain corporation. And the minute this man 
heard the name of the corporation, my brother shot up in his estimation. Why? Well, because this corporation at that time had maintained an annual growth rate of something like 23% for like 15 years. We must be cautious in putting too much stock in what we often call visible results. Now, are any of us tempted by this? Are you tempted to put too much stock in visible results? How does that influence the church? In due time. In due time, it says, doesn't it? In due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Why would you grow weary, you know? A few years ago, a young man left this community and moved to Colorado Springs. It's not Chris Taylor. And this young man came back for a visit. When he was back, uh, a number of us were over at uh, a house for a bachelor's party. And uh, there was some other man, I don't remember who it was, who was getting married. Maybe some of you remember who it was. And uh, it wasn't this young man, though. And uh, we were standing in the kitchen, and he was telling me that he had found a church. And he described the church to me, and he was so excited. Well, I had never seen this man be excited. Even when he rode his ninja, he didn't get excited. But he was excited. He was just frothing at the mouth about this church he'd become a part of. But everything he told me about this church were things that were completely about its size its video screens, and especially the number of people who attended and the important and famous people that the pastor knew. And he went on and on about this person coming to their church to speak to them because their pastor was good buds with this dude. And it went on and on and on and on. And I did something that I hope you will forgive me for, which is after listening to this for about 10 minutes, I looked at him And I said to him, I said, do you really think I care? (laughs) Now, why did I do that? And and that's not all I said. Having started, I went on. Now, the worst thing you can say about me is that I don't shut my mouth when I should, that I'm not disciplined, that uh, sometimes I'm too aggressive, often. Uh, (laughs) um, But what's the best thing you can say about that? Well, the best thing you can say about it is the sirens were, were, were just screaming in my ear as he talked. All my jealousy and bitterness and resentment, all my weariness at well-doing. And this man was a seductress. He was trying to seduce me. He was used as an instrument of Satan in my life. And you know, sometimes violent men have to seize it. And uh, I did apologize to him. What I did was wrong. But man, that was evil. Why? Because the whole point is that the church has nothing to do with who you know that's famous. 
and how many people go and how large your parking lot is and what this, how much you spend on your Casavant pipe organ. What does it have to do? It has to do with the people humbling their hearts under the ministry of the Word and the sacraments and spurring one another on to good deeds. And if good deeds become how large your video screen is and how many important people. Now, would it surprise you to know that that pastor was Ted Haggard? When did Ted Haggard grow weary and well-doing? Was it when he went to Denver and hung out at a hotel room and bought meth? It's not when he grew weary and well-doing. He grew weary and well-doing when he decided that he was going to take his profit now. And he did that when he transplanted the glory of Jesus Christ for his own glory. And you say, well, that's a harsh judgment to make. And do you really need to use names? And doesn't the Bible say to restore such a person with gentleness? And I'm saying, if I were working with Ted Haggard, I would restore him in gentleness, but I'm working with you. And you better learn the right lesson from that. And the lesson is not that you shouldn't hang out with male prostitutes and buy meth. What is the lesson? The lesson is that God is to receive the glory. And all this apparatus of evangelicalism that talks about numbers and budgets ad nauseum on and on and on until I vomit it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Nothing. You look at his face on the internet and you look at how it's been airbrushed. What does this have to do with God? What does this have to do with Jesus Christ? Nothing. You know, when he was failed, he was failed when his elders refused to confront him as he began to take the profit from himself that belonged only to God. And it was inevitable then that the day would come when he would be fallen. And it may not come out until heaven. But it's been clear for years. And he puts up on his website, the Time Magazine has named him one of the top 25 influential evangelicals. And he takes that from Time and puts it on his website Elders would have to be completely lunatics to not know that he needed to be disciplined over that. Now, I have no desire to beat up on Ted Haggard. I desire to beat up on his congregation and his elders. (laughs) It is your privilege to kick me and to headbutt me. And to question your elders. And to say you don't like having a band instead of the piano. And it is our privilege to discipline you and to tell you when we believe that we're doing what God has told us to do. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time. We try to take the profit in this life. We try to take it now. We think that we're the profit. You know, our name, our reputation, our being one of the top 25 in the country. You know, 5,000 people in our church. You know, books that are published that have our picture that's been airbrushed on the back. All the apparatus. What Kierkegaard referred to as the livings. Listen, guys, I grew up in Wheaton. And this is an old game to me. 
I have seen my home church go from a place that is somewhat humble to a place that is very proud. I've seen the cars change from Falcons to Mercedes. The kingdom of God is very profitable to Wheaton today. But I've also had my daughter-in-law tell me that when she got done with Wheaton College that it was a hotbed of feminism. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? We're constantly faced with the decision as to whether or not we are going to not grow weary in well-doing. Think of the mother I saw this morning, Anna Talcott, as I walked in. And she had Ellie in her arms. Is Anna isn't here, right? Well, wait, Stephen, Stephen, come here. How about this? How many kids do you have? How old are they? Has this one been easy to have? Yeah. Do you change her diapers? Huh? (laughs) You think of fathers and mothers, and you think of having children. And if you think of having children as... The capital investment of a civilization is very clear why decadent cultures in the Western world have given up having children. Grow weary in well-doing. Luther says that God in heaven smiles when a father changes a dirty diaper. I changed almost none. Stephen is an honorable father. And we have a lot of honorable fathers in this church. But you think, you know, think of the discipline of a family how wearying it is to discipline your children. And it's very easy to understand the statement, don't grow weary in well-doing, directly in the context of if anybody falls into sin, you who are spiritual restore with gentleness, prayer that you don't yourself fall. Why do parents grow weary? I was talking to a couple mothers recently on two separate occasions, and both mothers sent me this message, and the message was, you know, I, I just resent. They didn't use the word resent, but, you know, I just... I I, I don't appreciate it when my children aren't good and I have to discipline them. And the expectation was that if things were really going well, then the parents wouldn't have to discipline their children. Well, how much fervor and exactitude and commitment is a mother who thinks that she's owed a life where she doesn't have to discipline her children because they're naturally good. How much discipline is she going to do? Well, she's not going to do it because she's going to resent it every time. Well, if you were really the good child, you should be. I wouldn't have to do this. All right, come here. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You think of the parent who is afraid that if they discipline their child, that their child won't like them anymore and won't be their friend. Don't grow weary in well-doing. In due time. What is due time for a mom? 
How many? Thirty? There are some parents here that would that would plead for thirty years. You know, that shows that you have good children. There are some children that we don't see the fruit of our labors until they're much, much older. In due time with God is when? It can be now, it can be tomorrow, it can be 10, 30 years from now. But for very many people, you remember Hebrews? The great hall of faith? Remember where it talks about those who were sawn in two? When is their due time? Hmm? Their due time is when they die. And for some today, their due time may be when Jesus Christ returns. That's the due time. Do not grow weary in well-doing for in due time. William Carey arrived in India in 1793 with a burden to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who had never heard the name. For seven years, he proclaimed the gospel message faithfully week after week. Okay, quick. 52 times 7. 350. 364. Everybody's agreed it's four. month after month with not a single native of India converted to Christ. Not a single one. Through years of struggle and doubt, Carey was often discouraged but never defeated. To his sisters back home in England, he wrote, quote, I feel as a farmer does about his crop. Sometimes I think the seed is springing, and thus I hope. A little blasts all, and my hopes are gone like a cloud. They were only weeds which appeared. Or if a little corn sprung up, it quickly dies, being either choked with weeds or parched by the sun of persecution. Yet I still hope in God and will go forth in his strength and make mention of his righteousness, even of his only. On December 28, 1800, Carey baptized in the Ganges River his first Hindu convert, a carpenter named Krishna Paul. William Ward, who witnessed the dramatic deliverance of this man from the grip of paganism into the glorious truth of the gospel, wrote in his diary, quote, Ye gods of stone and clay, did ye not tremble when in the triune name one soul shook you from his feet as dust? How about missionaries? Did they grow weary in well-doing? I was talking to a man a couple days ago who... Uh, had been at a meeting, a public meeting, where one of the top leaders of Navigators had said that he thought that we ought to do away with the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then he was describing to me how in the international Navigators movement there's a strong uh, conviction that what we need to do is we need to uh, not require Islamic converts to be baptized and to not require them to become a part of a church and uh, to let them go ahead and continue to worship in a mosque and to teach them that Allah is God. Now, what is that? Is that the new missiology? Is that like cultural, what do they call it? Uh, huh? 
Yes, thank you. Yeah. Contextualization. Is that what it is? No. It's growing weary and well-doing. That's all it is. Faruni. From Sri Lanka. And Veruni hits the issue of the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we do? We say to Veruni, well, well, don't worry about it. It really would be very difficult for you to go back to Sri Lanka and your family if you're baptized. But you don't need to make that choice. You don't need to cross the Rubicon. You know, just, just step in the puddle here. You know, just, you know, we'll fudge a little bit with you, Veroni, and you can have... Your home gods and America's gods. And, and, and you don't have to choose you this day whom you will serve. You know. I meet with some of you, you're rich, and we need to build the building. And I say to you, look, there's nothing wrong with being rich. You know, you can be rich and a Christian also. And... We're just asking for the droppings from your table. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Okay, so here's the question. Are you weary in well-doing? After the elders meeting this week, we were talking about all the young people in our church who are nipping at our back ends because they're zealous for God. It's a church filled with young people who are zealous for God. We were talking about how we better start moving the pace a little bit because we're about to be overrun. Afterwards, one of the elders were, were talking afterwards, and he says to me, You know, Tim, I, I just, I'm, I'm rebellious. And I said, How? In what way? Well, I just don't want to give more time. I'm too selfish. Isn't that nice to know that an elder is enough in touch with his sin that he actually said it? And I said to him, hey, brother, it's okay, but don't think of it as a duty. Think of it as a privilege. Think of the gifts that God has given you. And would it surprise you to know that he didn't see himself as having any gifts for these young men? You know, think of the gifts God's given you for the church. Think of the people that are dependent upon your well-doing. And then love them. Does a mother have to be seduced into giving herself to her child? She loves her child. And so at the end of the day, we love God. And then we love the people of God. And we even find it within ourselves to love those who hate God. Very interesting that when we move to next week, that in his commentary on the next verse, you see it here where it says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Do you know who Calvin centuries ago says are people that we should be particularly committed to showing love to? Do you know who? Who did he name? Muslims. We should have a cosmic love feast for people from Islam as a church. You weary?
My dad, growing up in New York City, used to see men who walked around New York with sandwich boards on. They went to Daddy Hall's Episcopal Seminary, and his favorite sandwich board was, as this guy would walk towards you, you'd see on the front of his board, I'm a fool for Christ. When he walked away from you, the back of it said, whose fool are you? You're somebody's fool. You're giving your time and your money to somebody. And there's only one who says that you will reap. Isn't it curious that the magazine or the publication that analyzes what kind of rate of return you can expect from investments is called Morningstar? Who is the Morningstar? Jesus Christ. And his investments aren't going to have a pathetic 10 or 25% per year for 10 years. Let's pray.